Welcome back to Queer Public, the podcast about real-life queer life. Today, we're talking about all the places we go looking for ourselves. And right at our fingertips is the world of television. The good, the bad, the guilty pleasures, and the transformative works of art. And in this Technicolor world, sometimes we see ourselves And sometimes, even in 2019, we don't. Today we're asking, what do we do as queer people to transform the media we consume into truer, fuller representations of ourselves? In this episode, we're talking to a bunch of rad queers. And none of us are pop culture critics. We're not here to tell you what to watch or what not to watch. We're here as friends to talk about some things we've loved and bonded over as queer people. While I was watching Xena, there was always that battle between factions of the fandom of are they or aren't they? Right. And since I was in, I was so young and, you know, I was, I think the same age, like 11 or 12, I hadn't really come into my own. So I was like, well... They're more than friends. <laughs> and they're maybe, maybe not lovers. Uh, but I was like, you know, they're soulmates. Whatever that means, they're soulmates. And then I just referred to them as traveling buddies most of the time. In the 90s TV landscape, there were few, if any, queer women to look up to. So if that's what you were looking for, you had to settle for the next best thing. Lucy Lawless is Cena, warrior princess, coming up next. Zena was about a warrior princess on a journey to redeem herself after being a warlord. Zena is brave. I'm not waiting around while you have all the fun. She's beautiful. The two main characters on the show are women who travel together and almost every episode have to save each other. Is one woman too much for you? Their relationship wasn't explicitly gay. The characters had male lovers. But the audience was convinced it was gay. To this day, Zena has a cult following of queers. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of queer people who watch that show at first were like, are they, aren't they? But then by the time you get to, like, season... Two. Yeah, two or three. <laughs> it's like, no, we're going to make up these excuses for them to put their mouths together. Like, <laughs> Zena needs this magical water, and Gabrielle, for some reason, can only carry it in her mouth. Oh, yeah. And she has to make out with her in order to give this water to Zena. I feel like I kind of already knew that I was queer, but the speculation of a fictional character being queer because I wasn't around a ton of queer people at that time in real life was like, oh, maybe that's what this is. And she looks really great in that outfit. And why are they in a hot tub together? Yeah. This seems really, really gay and not a thing that you necessarily do with your best friend. It was like on during like the years where you're thinking about those kinds of things, like 12 to 18. By the time I got to the end of the show, I was like, A, they're gay, B, so am I. In order to fill in the gap, the glaring question mark over Gabrielle and Zena's heads, there are archives of fanfiction that queers their relationship. 
the internet became a thing when I was in middle school, and I discovered fan fiction. Yeah. And I discovered raunchy fan fiction. Yep. <laughs> and um, I don't know why I thought this was a good idea, but I actually printed out one of the raunchier <laughs> fan fictions and hid it under my mattress, thinking my mother would not find you it. Never leave physical evidence. No, especially print it out and leave it somewhere. No, especially not when it's carpet cleaning day and they're <laughs> actually going to move the bed. So I think Xena did help me figure myself out, as embarrassing as that was. There are whole catalogs of fanfiction. This one, called Archive of Our Own, is an entire database of what feels like everything that has ever been written about anything, from Xena to Harry Potter, from the most mainstream TV show to the most niche anime. I met someone whose life and queerness is intertwined with her experience consuming and creating fan fiction. My name's Janelle. I'm a Latina in New York City, and I'm 27. I first started reading fan fiction when I read the uh, first Harry Potter book. For everything I consumed, I would look up fanfiction immediately after because you just want more after you finish. Any movie, book, anything um, that I enjoyed, as soon as it was done and I was left wanting more, I would immediately run to look at fanfiction. The ones I vividly remember reading when I was that young are were all like female characters with other female characters. And I, I think that it did kind of make me comfortable early on with the idea of queerness and lesbian relationships and gay relationships because the fan fiction, you know, it wasn't separated by this is lesbian or this is gay. Like all of the romantic fiction was just listed on the same page um, regardless of who was in the romantic relationship. and. I think that kind of gave me a certain open-mindedness in life that I didn't find anywhere else. Nonetheless, Janelle becomes aware of the negative stigma surrounding the consumption and creation of fan fiction. When I was 11, I was extremely ashamed of my fan fiction writing habits. I would never tell anyone um, at school that I was writing fan fiction, I would be, you know, mortified if someone was coming up behind me and I was writing it. I'd minimize the window real quick. Seems like something that only losers would do, and I didn't want people to think I was a loser. And this actually was part of the reason that I quit writing um, fan fiction because, you know, I. I started when I was 11, 12, around 13, 14. Um, I started getting all this teenage insecurity and self-doubt and this need to be cool. So I kind of just deleted everything and ghosted my entire presence off the internet and didn't write again for the rest of high school or college because it just kind of seemed like this embarrassing, childish thing that I shouldn't be doing. So Janelle grows up, she moves to New York City, and then one day, her life changes in an instant. In uh, 2014, um, my mom got diagnosed with leukemia. 
I had to kind of drop my entire life, um, quit my work, um, pack up my things and move out of my apartment in New York to go back home and take care of her. I'm an only child, so she didn't have anyone else who could be her caretaker while she was going through that. She lived in the cancer ward at the hospital. Her immune system was so compromised that she couldn't leave and I couldn't leave either. I had to be there with her and I couldn't really have visitors either because her immune system was so low that introducing her to any outside germs or bacteria whatsoever could give her a cold and that cold would kill her. So it was extremely lonely because I couldn't go out to have a social life and my friends couldn't really come to visit me. I couldn't work or apply to jobs, so I was just really bored all day. And um, I, on Tumblr one day actually, I saw this gift set from this cartoon called Miraculous Ladybug that I had never heard of before, but it looked cute. So I downloaded a few episodes and I was so bored that I also started writing fan fiction. Miraculous Ladybug is about a teenager named Marinette, who's secretly a superhero. Her best friend Alia is an aspiring journalist who chronicles appearances of the Miraculous Ladybug, but doesn't know that it's her own best friend. And Alia is really into Miraculous Ladybug. So interesting because Alia often notices things I didn't see at all in movies and in real life. She's the most observant person I know, and she has an interest in everything. She's also very curious, maybe too curious. But this is why she'll be a great journalist. She runs a fan site called The Lady Blog, and she's just obsessed with this superhero ladybug. Um, And to me, I interpreted it as she's in love with Ladybug, which means she is in love with her best friend and she has no idea, which I found, you know, it was a really rich well for me to tap. Her dream is to have an interview with her. And maybe she will someday, who knows? So when I sat down and decided to write something with these characters, I started just writing something pretty earnest. So Janelle writes a love story, a sweet queer romance between Miraculous Ladybug and her best friend, Alia. So I made a new Tumblr account that none of my friends would be able to trace back to me. And I posted these six pages of Miraculous Ladybug fan fiction. And even that felt weird, but I guess I was already in the situation where I'm watching cartoons again aimed for very little children, and I guess it felt kind of fun to like regress. And I immediately got a response. Um, People were following and commenting and reblogging and liking. Um, I went to sleep and when I woke up the next morning, my brand new account that I had made just to post these six pages of writing um, had 200 followers. And they were so excited about my writing and asking me for more and what happens next. And um, I hadn't felt that in a really long time. And I forgot how good it felt to have people... um, 
I guess, who are fans of you, which, you know, when I was 11, I also had a very similar um, sense of people being excited when I posted a new chapter and they would wait and they would ask me um, if I'm okay or what's wrong if I went a week without updating anything. Um, so this all started happening again when I posted this little fan fiction for an obscure French cartoon that I thought nobody would discover because it was such a niche thing. In the hospital, Janelle finds her connection to the outside world, finds a community, and sheds the stigma around this thing she loves. And while all that is happening, her mom gets better, and they move out of the hospital, and Janelle ends up back in New York again. Now that her life is back to normal, Janelle doesn't write as much fan fiction, but it's still an important part of her life. I do still read fan fiction, and it's actually kind of become a more enriching experience for me because I made so many friends through the community. Other authors who would, you know, reach out to me to say they love my work or who repeatedly left nice comments. And they're all on the queer asexual spectrum too. So it's always knowing that um, I can bring something to the table that they'll understand. It's like having a writer's group. I love following what my friends are writing and what they're doing. I love when they get stuck on something and I can help them. I had never found an online community that was mostly queer before this. It's always kind of like people don't really write it on their sleeve. But when somebody invites me to um, a group chat where everyone's using their screen names, I can look them up and I can see, you know, oh, they write all this awesome queer stuff, so they must be queer, or at least they understand it. Fast forward to 2019. Queer characters are all over broadcast television and streaming services. It's pretty rare to watch a show that doesn't have some sort of queer representation. And in the beginning, most of it is pretty problematic. Characters centered only on their coming out stories or centered around homogenized, stereotypical ideas of queerness. Nonetheless, GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, stated that in the 2018-19 season, 8.8% of series regulars on broadcast television are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer characters, which is up 6.4 from the year before. Male and female characters were represented equally, and for the first time, LGBTQ characters included more people of color than white people. The report also states that the CW has the most LGBTQ characters. In 2017, the CW put Riverdale, a show based on Archie Comics, into development. So the show comes out, and right away, there are problems. In the first episode, the show features a queer baiting kiss between the two straight female leads, Betty and Veronica. Check your sell-by date, ladies. Faux lesbian kissing hasn't been taboo since 1994. So let's see if you do better with the interview portion of our audition. 
and fans freak. In these early episodes, there are actually queer characters like Kevin, but he's a white, cis, gay guy who at times is a bit of a stereotype. So some fans are bummed, but they keep watching. Before Riverdale's high femme power couple, Cheryl Blossom and Tony Topaz, is revealed in season two, lots of queers latch on to a different character, Jughead Jones. You and Archie are my friends, okay? Everyone else, including Kevin, including Veronica, are people that two months ago I would have actively shunned. Why? In case you haven't noticed, I'm weird. I'm a weirdo. I don't fit in, and I don't want to fit in. Even though Riverdale's Jughead is not written as a queer character, he gets adopted as a queer icon in a funny, good-natured way. There is something about his wardrobe, his moodiness, his distinct refusal to participate in normative society that reads a little queer. So much so that Otto Straddle wrote a How to Dress Like Riverdale's Jughead Jones style guide. But it's more than that. Queers on the internet noticed this phenomenon and took to Tumblr to document their experiences relating to Jughead as a queer character. Suddenly, Jughead was a thing. The entire first season of Riverdale, I had these like really, really strong feelings whenever I saw Jughead on screen. And I was really confused about it because I knew I wasn't like sexually attracted to Cole Sprouse or the character, but I was having these like really, really intense feelings and I couldn't figure out what they were. And finally I was like, oh, I just wanna be Jughead. Yes, I had the exact same experience. My name is Ariana Martinez. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm the editor and sound designer at Queer Public. My name is Molly Woodstock. I use they, them pronouns, and I am the creator of the Gender Reveal podcast. I think something about being like a queer, non-binary, asexual spectrum person in the world in their late 20s is that it is really difficult for me to find someone who I feel like really represents the way that I see myself like so so rarely do I see true representation of myself and like we could argue that this isn't true representation of myself because like this is for the character a man in a straight relationship but I just think emotionally it was like such a pure representation of myself like his personal interests are so good like I am a writer like he's in a gang created by indigenous people of which I am one you know and so like it was just so powerful to see myself emotionally in a character in a way that I like literally don't know if I've really ever experienced before. Yes, yes. And and Jughead's way of relating to the world is so studied and observant, but can be emotionally impulsive. Like if we think about who Jughead is, like Jug's clothes are like flannels and this jean jackets and this one like perfectly distressed leather jacket. Uh, Jughead's dating a girl, right? And so like Jughead as a male character might not be queer, but if I put myself into Jughead, who is dating a woman, it becomes a queer relationship. When you're watching Jughead and putting your queer self in his place, that story then becomes 
processed through your queerness in a way. Um, and I think there's a lot of people watching who are doing that same thing. I feel like I was just having a lot of sexual energy, but I didn't want to direct it at Jughead. And so I was just like, okay, having sexual energy when Jughead is on screen, but also not trying to have sex with Jughead or Cole Sprouts. What is this? And then I was like, oh, I want to have sex with someone as Jughead. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, honestly, almost word for word is exactly what I experienced. I felt like some sort of romantic tension, like with myself and this character, but it wasn't, but it wasn't directed at the character. It was recognition. I think the interplay between Jughead's emotions and his intellect felt really real to me. Betty and Jughead's relationship is portrayed to us as so much more based on friendship and like mutual support and understanding and trust and sex is more incidental um, or like sexuality and like sex drive is more incidental, which again, like speaks to me more as like a person on the asexual spectrum. He falls in love with Betty in part because they're like solving mysteries together and they're using their brains together and they're friends first. And that's how I have felt in every single relationship I've ever had. I think in a lot of the relationships, whether that's Veronica and Archie's straight relationship or the relationships that Kevin, a gay character, has or Cheryl and Tony's relationship sometimes. Um, Like, the sex seems like a really important part of their relationship and also like very emotionally charged and very intense and very much what you'd think of in like any film in which two characters are having sex where they're sort of like ripping each other's clothes off and throwing each other against the wall and all that. And I think Betty and Jughead's relationship is just a lot like sweeter and slower where they're like already hanging out on the couch and like having a good time talking about their feelings and then they end up fucking which is like uh how I feel like it is to be gay (laughs) so here's the thing about Jughead when Riverdale was in development showrunners cast Cole Sprouse the child actor and twin known for Disney's sweet life of Zack and Cody as Jughead. While preparing for his role, Cole realized that in the most recent iteration of the Archie comics, Jughead is canonically asexual. Eager to have this type of representation on screen, Cole asks the producers if they'd consider an asexual Jughead. Teen Vogue even profiles Cole Sprouse as he advocates for his portrayal of the character. But ultimately, Riverdale's writers say no to the idea of an asexual Jughead. But that doesn't mean Jughead's character entirely misses the mark. Jughead's character does not exude a lot of what we traditionally think of as masculine energy. And so I think taking your like sort of less masculine loner soft boy character and making them asexual is actually not my favorite idea because I think it sort of perpetuates the idea that like someone who literally self-identifies as a weirdo is the one who's asexual like that makes me uncomfortable and something that I think about when I think about what Jughead means to me and represents for me is that I'm a person who's on the asexual spectrum and I have sex with people and I have relationships with people and so it's important to have representation from people who literally say that they're asexual, but I don't think that every representation of asexual people need to look like 
Todd from BoJack Horseman, who doesn't have relationships, who doesn't experience attraction ever, and who literally like goes to asexual meetups. That's an important representation, but that's not all of our experience. And so Jughead is a teen who's in a relationship, who's having sex with his girlfriend sometimes, and none of that feels unrelatable to me. Yeah, yeah, I felt the same way. And I also felt like there is a difference to me between the way that Veronica and Archie's relationship is portrayed and Betty and Jughead's relationship is portrayed. And I think that's another reason why there's been more queering of Jughead's character, even while he's in this like straight relationship with Betty, just because of the way that relationship has been written. The way that relationship is expressed is still relatable to you as a queer person. But then there's also just the way that like Jughead was being perceived by other people and relating to other people that I identified with very strongly. I didn't talk about it with other people because I didn't know how it would be received one and I didn't really know how to explain the experience I was having. So I've only talked about it with a few people, but every single time it's always been with queer and trans people and they've always been like, screaming affirmation uh which was great because i literally had no idea like i didn't know about the auto straddle jughead fashion guide until i like said something in a tweet about jughead fashion and you know someone linked me to it and i was like oh this is like a a discourse that everyone's having i think that the kind of extension of that is when people you know write fan fiction or produce fan art or whatever like a lot of people including myself when we read or write fan fiction it's very much like a, an experience of projection, like putting yourself into that world. And I think a lot of people have done that, at least from what I've read, through writing fan fiction where Jughead is in some way more visibly not in like a conventional straight relationship or is, you know, not experiencing a binary gender or whatever. And I've actually seen like quite a lot of, you know, non-binary Jughead headcanons in fan fiction, which I think is evidence that it's not just you and me who are having like weird, intense feelings about Jughead. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about Jughead being non-binary, but it obviously would explain why that character resonates very deeply with me. Because you and I share experiences of gender and sexuality that I think are really specific. And the fact that we're both kind of experiencing them in similar ways, like I don't necessarily have other friends who fall into that exact intersection. So when we did talk about this experience of Jughead, it was very special for me because it felt like, again, that very specific intersection of things all aligning. And um, and I think that's maybe what is transformative about fiction and what's transformative about TV, even when it's bad. And, you know, things that are in the mainstream, like this show, like the fact that this show is a network TV show that's available on Netflix means that we both watched it. And I think that that's something really magical about this show and like the opportunities provided by this show, right? Is like you and I, Ariana, like would not be having this conversation if not for Jughead. And so like I deeply, deeply see myself in this character and you deeply, deeply see yourself in this character. And via the distributive property, we can understand that we actually like see a lot of ourselves in each other. But I don't know how easily we would have seen those same things in each other uh, if we had not had this opportunity to sort of triangulate them through this like ostensibly cis white male straight character. The fact is, there are other shows that are doing representation better than Riverdale. Glad praised Jane the Virgin, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and Red Line for their representations of queerness. 
And queer people we spoke to for this episode are watching all kinds of new and exciting stuff from shows like Pose and She-Ra, Charmed, and Tales of the City. And Riverdale's sibling show, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, has Theo, a trans boy played by non-binary actor Lachlan Watson. And because of this, Theo's character has a journey. A whole season passes before Theo fully realizes his gender. And while this representation might have its flaws, it's encouraging to see. There is a representation that wasn't there before. So instead of imagining a non-binary jughead on Riverdale, we get to see Lachlan Watson draw from their own experiences as non-binary to create Theo. We get to see what happens when queer people are able to build the worlds they need to exist. Unsurprisingly, in our search for queer representation in mainstream media, we learned that no character or show is perfect. We are far too complicated a community to each be represented by anything that isn't made entirely by us or for us. But in the meantime, we can dream. What we do find is something way better than the next binge-worthy show. We get to witness friendships forged and communities built in real and digital space where queer people find themselves and each other. Big thanks to our guests, Mars Williamson, Ashley Laidlaw, Janelle Yee, Ariana Martinez, and Molly Woodstock for letting us record very personal conversations about pop culture. Special thanks to Andy Elseri for recording Mars and Ashley. Queer Public is produced by me, Erin McGregor, and edited and sound designed by Ariana Martinez. We heard music from Chris Zabriskie, Supernova, and Mai's Darling. You can find links to all of the music you heard today in our show notes. Our guest Molly Woodstock is the host and creator of the amazing podcast Gender Reveal. It's so good. They just released their 50th episode and their entire catalog is totally binge-worthy. Head on over there to check it out. Listeners, I'm going to get real here for a second. We need donations to keep this show in production. We can't keep making it for free. We want to, but we can't. So if you love what we're doing, if you love Queer Public, help us out. Maybe it's $1 a month. Maybe if you're someone who holds access to wealth, it's $10 a month. Maybe it's a one-time donation of $25 or $50. Whatever it looks like for you, we need your help to grow our budget. Visit patreon.com slash queerpublic to get access to lots of cool behind-the-scenes stuff and swag. The sooner we hit some Patreon goals, the sooner you'll hear from us again. And if you aren't in a position to become a patron, that's okay. You can help us in so many other ways. You can rate us on iTunes because that helps other people find the show. You can post about us on social media. You can tell a friend about the show. All of those are wins for us. That's what motivates us to keep going. Follow us on social media at Queer Public and please, please keep in touch. I'm your host, Erin McGregor. Thanks for listening. 